And I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, and we're going to read the first 10 verses there this morning. And as we do this, I should mention that there's a series of three parables um, in Luke chapter 15. All of them deal with the same theme in just a little different, different fashion. Um, I get the connection, and I hope you do as well. We're just going to read the first two of those parables this morning, however. So let's read from God's words, page 1623, 1623 in your pew Bibles. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, that is Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until, until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and he says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or, suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, every so often you and I experience the intersection of two worlds. It might just be a, a passing glance something you see out of the, the corner of your eye. It's there for a moment, and then it's gone. Seldom is it more than that. But it's just enough to unsettle you. It's enough to make you ask, is there more to this world than what we can see? A seminary professor of mine a while back, quite a while back, wrote a little book on angels. In that book, he tells the story of what happened to one of his students. It was a snowy night, a Michigan night. Evan and his friend decided to go to the mall to do a little Christmas shopping for their wives. Road conditions were poor, but Christmas was only a week away, and, well, you know how it goes. They left home, and they headed for the mall. On the way, they came across... Um, a stalled car whose owner obviously needed some help. So they parked their own car, they got out and they began the struggle of trying to push this other car off of the road. Now unknown to the two men who were pushing was that there was a third car approaching on the icy road. And the driver never saw the stall until it was too late. But as the car slid on the ice toward these 
two men, someone or something, led Evan to turn around and to see the car sliding toward him, and that gave him just enough time for the two of them to jump into the snowbank before that car slammed into the back of the car they were pushing. Now, what do you think that was that caused Evan to turn around and look? Was that fate? Was it coincidence? Was it something else? Evan claimed that he knew exactly what it was. It was an angel, he said. Two worlds, one seen and one unseen, except for these fleeting moments when the two seem to intersect. Frederick Beekner, a pastor and writer, in his book, The Clown in the Belfry, tells uh, one of my favorite stories, so I'll share it with you. I think I've done it before. A year or so ago, he begins, a friend of mine died. One morning in his 68th year, he simply didn't wake up. It was about as easy a way as he could possibly have done it, but it was not easy for the people he left behind because it gave us no chance to start getting used to the idea or to say goodbye. He died in March and in May, my wife and I were staying with his widow overnight when I had a short dream about him. I dreamed he was standing there in the dark guest room where we were asleep, looking very much like himself in the navy blue jersey and white slacks that he often wore. I told him how much we had missed him and how glad I was to see him again, and he acknowledged that somehow. Then I said, are you really there, Dudley? I meant, was he there in fact, in truth, or was I merely dreaming he was there? And his answer was that he was really there. Can you prove it? I asked him. Of course, he said, and then he plucked a strand of wool out of his jersey and he, and he tossed it to me. And I caught it between my thumb and my forefinger, and the feel of it was so palpably real that it woke me up. And that's all there was to it. I told the dream at breakfast the next morning, and I'd hardly finished when my wife spoke. She said that she'd seen the strand on the carpet as she was getting dressed. She was sure it hadn't been there the night before, I rushed upstairs to see for myself, and there it was, a little tangle of navy blue wool. Now, what do you think about stories like that? Beekner himself says that he doesn't know what to make of that moment, but what about you? Was it just a, a coincidence? Was it a misfiring neuron in the brain? Maybe it was just a case of someone who doesn't vacuum very well. Or was it perhaps the brief intersecting of two worlds? I have to admit I'm, I'm pretty skeptical about things like this myself. In fact, if one of you were to come to me and tell me a story such as that, I think that I would probably listen politely, but I'm not sure that I would really believe it. It would take a lot to convince me. 
And I think many of us would probably stand in that same camp. We, we sort of stick to what we know, to what we can see and touch and validate to be true. Most of us draw a pretty thick line between the worlds of heaven and, and earth. And that line actually gives us some comfort, right? I mean, it allows us to sleep at night, knowing that, that heaven's going to stay where heaven belongs and earth is going to stay where earth belongs. There's, there's another line that I think we like to draw, and it's a line also that helps us to sleep at night. And it's the line that the Pharisees draw in our text. <clears throat> it's the line between the righteous and the unrighteous. The righteous and the unrighteous. This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. It's pretty clear where they're drawing that line, isn't it? And it's pretty clear, too, which side of that line they place themselves on. They throw themselves in with the righteous, with those who do not need to repent. At the same time, they group Jesus in with the unrighteous. Now, if you can help it, don't be too hard on the Pharisees here. Because if you think about it, we're all pretty much Pharisees in this regard. Whenever we draw that line between the righteous and the unrighteous, we tend to end up on the good side of that line. We always throw ourselves in with the righteous. For instance, when I was a kid, my dad didn't particularly like the kids that I hung around with in my neighborhood. Um, he called them, whenever he had the chance, hoods. Not to their faces, <clears throat> just to mine. And he was letting me know that in his mind, those kids were sinners. They were the unrighteous, right? Of course, we thought that that was rather judgmental and unrighteous of him to do that sort of thing and just place us in that category. And there you have it. Whenever we draw that line, we tend to end up on the good side of it. And when we draw those lines, we tend to think that they extend all the way into heaven, don't we? For some reason, we, we think that we can take what we see on the earth and we can project it right into heaven itself. And God is always on our side. And the Pharisees felt the same way. I mean, they were the righteous, right? And, and God was righteous. And so it seemed obvious to them that if God were to ever really come down to the earth, He most certainly would want to hang out with people like them. And therefore, if Jesus came and He spent His time with the unrighteous, if He consorted with tax collectors and prostitutes and other sinners, then, then obviously Jesus was really no emissary of God. He was plainly no prophet. He was surely no Messiah. He was on the wrong side of the line. And so, in a sense, what they did is they deauthorized Jesus himself. They deauthorized him. He has no insight into what goes on in heaven simply because he was hanging out on the wrong side of their line. 
Of course, Christmas just told us a different story, didn't it? The story of Christmas is the story of how God became incarnate, how God broke through the barrier between heaven and earth, and He came and He dwelt right here on earth among us. And, and in His time on the earth, He taught us about the realities of heaven, didn't He? Through Him, we could see what's going on in heaven. And that's what He shows us here in Luke 15. Jesus comes to the Pharisees and to people like them, to people like us, people set in our ways and convinced of our lines. And Jesus does what He does best with people like us. He doesn't confront us so much as He tells us a story. And in that story, He gives us a glimpse into heaven. And it's a corrective glimpse. And I would say it's an authoritative glimpse. And what He's saying is, we've got things wrong. Jesus says, I know what you people are like. You know, you, you celebrate things that are important to you. Things like the beginning of a new year. And you gather together with friends and family and you put on little party hats and you get out noisemakers and you eat a little too much and some of you drink a little too much and you have fireworks you might shoot off and you have a little party. Or if your Green Bay Packers win the Super Bowl, about a half a million of you are going to gather together and you'll throw a parade and you'll jump up and down and again you'll have noisemakers and again you'll probably eat a little too much and some of you will drink a little too much and you'll do stupid things to celebrate. But that's the kind of people you are. But in heaven, Jesus says, things are just a little bit different. In heaven, they break out the punch and the party hats whenever the good shepherd finds another one of his sheep. Whenever one sinner repents, all of heaven breaks loose in a party the likes of which you have never seen before. Imagine Michael and Gabriel clinking glasses with the Father. That's the reality of my world, says Jesus. That's the reality of God's world. God loves to find those who are lost. In other words, Jesus says, you've, you've got it all wrong. You think that God is thrilled at the prospect of coming to hang out with people like you, interesting people like you, accomplished people like you, good people like you, righteous people like you, that God would be honored to come and hang out with you. But, but he says the truth is that God is thrilled to hang out with people who admit that they aren't all that interesting and they aren't all that accomplished and they aren't even all that good and they're certainly not very righteous with those who simply admit that they are sinners. It's those people, says Jesus, 
those people who recognize all of their flaws, those who actually plot themselves on the other side of the line, the wrong side of the line, and repent. It's those people for whom God throws on His party hat. And Doug and Rhiannon, that's the story of baptism, really. I mean, we come to this baptismal font not because we're clean, but because we're dirty and we need to be washed. And we come here to admit that we are sinners and we need a friend in Jesus. We come to baptism with our heads bowed, admitting that we are on the wrong side of the line and we desire to be on the right side. We desire to be on the side with God. And that's, that's the beauty of Luke 15. It says that if, if we're willing to be scorned by the Pharisees and if we're willing to hang out with Jesus, then God wants to hang out with us. But this sometimes presents another problem. When, when we actually admit that, you know, we are on the wrong side of the line and we're not all that accomplished, we're not all that interesting, we're not all that good, there's another problem that arises. And it's one that's addressed by the Heidelberg Catechism. We talked about it in membership class, if, if you recall. And it's this. You see, the Pharisees in this chapter are people who could not believe that God would want to hang out with anyone other than themselves. And yet, some of us have just as hard a time believing the flip side of that, the opposite of that, that God would actually want to hang out with a sinner like me. Like I said, it comes up in our catechism, question and answer 21. The question is, what is true faith? And, and the answer is that true faith is the knowledge and the assurance that out of the sheer grace earned for us by Christ, here's the important part, that not only others, but I too, but I too have had my sins forgiven and have been made forever right with God. Now, if you hear the wording of the catechism, you begin to understand what that question is really asking. True faith is believing that not only others, but I too have had my sins forgiven. What's the assumption there? Well, the assumption is that that many of us have an easier time believing that Jesus would die for other people, for the people sitting next to us in the pew, for the people who grew up next to us in our homes. We have an easier time believing that Jesus would die for them than believing that He would actually die for me. Now, why is that? 
Well, part of it is because I know my own sins, right? And I don't know yours. I know my sins. I know the likelihood of, of, of me committing those same sins again and again and again. And so it's hard for me to believe that, yes, Jesus would actually die for a sinner like me. It's much easier to believe that he would die for you because I don't know what your sins are. But what it comes right down to, again, is, is that line. It's that line between the righteous and the unrighteous because I have a much easier time believing that Jesus would die for the righteous than the unrighteous. It's like a line that we just can't shake. Doug and Rhiannon, these are two realities that all of us as Christians struggle with, sometimes bouncing back between the two. The first is to believe that, that God loves people like them, that God loves people who are unrighteous, anyone different than myself. That's a struggle sometimes. But the second is the belief that God loves only them, the righteous, and not a sinner like me. And we fluctuate back and forth. And therefore, what I want to do this morning is just remind you that you, know, you and I no longer live according to the reality that we can see. The reality that we can test and verify. We now live by a reality that we cannot see. Faith, says the author of Hebrews, is being certain of what we do not see. Certain of what we do not see. Certain of the fact that Jesus loves me. Certain of the fact that he has washed away all my sins. Certain that on the last day he will raise me from the dust. And certain of the fact that all of heaven rejoices whenever a sinner such as me repents and is brought home. Let me try and give you an illustration of that this morning. When our boys were young, one of my responsibilities was to take them to swimming lessons. Lessons were at Richmond Pool on the west side of Grand Rapids. It was one of those outdoor neighborhood pools. It was visited by the whole neighborhood, and so there are about 10 different groups of swimming lessons all going on at the same time. Ben, our oldest, was among the five-year-old group. They didn't need their parents with them. Um, Sam was in the three-year-old group whose parents were required to be there to assist, right? So there I was, helping Sam. Um, but as you might imagine, three-year-olds don't do much, and so it didn't take a whole lot of help. So I spent most of my time looking across the pool at what was going on with Ben. And he didn't know it. His teacher knew it because every time she looked up, she saw me spying on my kid. But I couldn't really resist because here was this little guy who the day before was afraid to put his face in the water. And now she had him up on the edge of the diving board, jumping into the water, going under, dog paddling back to the side. And my heart just sort of went out to him. 
Anyway, I was watching him up on the diving board again, and he was just about ready to jump in, and he looked over my way, and he caught my eyes. And he did this little wave, and then he plunged in. You know, we all need those little moments. Those little moments when we look over and we catch someone's eye and we know that they're watching and they care and they want to protect us and they love us. And Doug and Rhiannon, this is one of those moments for you where Jesus opens the door to heaven and he says, take a look. There's a party going on, and it's for you. Believe it or not, it's for you. And it's not one of those things that you have to wonder about, like a little blue thread on the carpet, because it's, it's right here in black and white. I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are so gracious and so kind. And you know what it's like to be human. And you know that every so often <clears throat> we need to peer into heaven and we need to catch the eyes of our Heavenly Father and to know once again that there's someone who's watching. There's someone who cares. There's someone who is protecting us. There's someone who's celebrating us. Thank you. Lord Jesus, for your grace, give us all, give us all that look into heaven today and tomorrow and the next. This is our prayer in Jesus' name, amen.